Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Good afternoon and welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Brawley, your host for The Profile this afternoon and very excited to be joined by Alistair McGrath, who I'll introduce in just a moment's time. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you'd like a free edition of that monthly title, I'm the senior editor, so I'm a bit biased, but I do think it is an excellent publication. Uh, why not go online and ask for a free sample copy? That's at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And uh, every week here on The Profile, we bring you interesting Christians from all different walks of life and faith, telling us their story and what they're doing at present in their life. Alistair McGrath is well known as a theologian, priest and a former scientist. He was an atheist at one time, but uh, ever since he really discovered God, he's been writing about uh, how we can put reason and faith together uh, in the laboratory, in our lives. And a, a very exciting new book has just come out by Alistair, The Great Mystery, Science, God and the Human Quest for Meaning. We're going to be talking about that on the programme today, but also finding out about Alistair's life, faith and work. Alistair, welcome along to The Profile. Lovely to be here, Justin. Thank you. It's great to have you. Um, I have been a big fan of your work. Uh, uh, I hope you don't blush at that. But um, uh, in many ways, I see you as uh, following in the tradition of people like C.S. Lewis, because, of course, he was uh, an atheist at one time, uh, went to Oxford University, and in the course of thinking and talking and, uh, I suppose, uh, an experience as well, um, he, of course, became a Christian and a great Christian thinker and intellectual. Uh, you, of course, have written and studied the life of C.S. Lewis to a great extent. And to some extent, your own story uh, is not dissimilar because you arrived yourself at university as an atheist, didn't you? Yes. In fact, Lewis and I are both born in Belfast. And we well, both there you went go. Up to the, Oxford the, and the discovered Christianity. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But that's right. I mean, I went to Oxford as an atheist and, in fact, expecting my uh, time at university to confirm my atheism because I, I was studying science and, and I got this very definite view from my, my scientific work that science just gobbled up the space in which God used to exist, that there was simply no way there could be any meaningful conversation between science and God because there was no God, mm. and because science actually explained everything, so that it was a completely redundant conversation. But then, coming up to Oxford, realizing that actually things were not that simple, that my atheism was much less evidenced than I had realized, that Christianity was much more intellectually exciting than I had realized, I, I began to just get come to the conclusion there's an awful lot of thinking I mm. needed to do, and to mm. cut a very long story short, I moved away from atheism and embraced Christianity. It was a very big transition. I mean, this adoption of atheism that you had when you arrived at university was that just something that because that was the, the environment you grew up in was it something you'd consciously sort of decided on at some point it was a thought through position mm. uh, I had read widely as a teenager and I come to the view atheism was right that it was the future and it was not as if it was just sort of way going with the cultural mood although at that mm. time the cultural mood was moving in that direction it was much more my individual consideration this is the best way of making sense of things atheism is the only intellectual option and that as far as I was concerned was the end of the discussion. When Lewis converted he famously described himself as the most reluctant convert <laughs> in all of England. What what was your experience of, of the lights coming on in that way? Was, was, was there the same sense of oh my goodness this is really true or, or did you embrace it wholeheartedly? I think, well, first of all, it was unexpected. I, I did not expect this to happen. Mm. But it wasn't quite the sort of experience Lewis had. It was more sort of gradual crystallization of realization that actually this isn't right and mm. this is. And so I, I can't really put a date when I moved from one to the other. It's much more just a growing realization that I had made a mistake, but a correctable mistake. Mm. And in effect, that, that I would be able to move away and embrace something. And the criterion was the same. You know, what makes most 
sense of things. My intellectual, my conversion was actually very intellectual. It was basically, this is the best way of making sense of things. And obviously, that meant that I had a rather rational view of Christianity to begin with, although, of course, it was enriched as I went on. But certainly mm. for me, Christianity was a sense-making uh, template, if you like, mm. something that really helped me to make sense of what life was all about. Yeah. You went there to study biology, biochemistry, and so on. Um, and, and in a sense, many people, you know, and you would be a contemporary of someone like Richard Dawkins in a similar field uh, at Oxford University, uh, you know, have come to the conclusion that, well, science simply is the de facto explanation for why we're here, uh, why, any, you know, why things are the way they are. And they very much see that as something replacing religious explanations. That's certainly the way someone like Dawkins would see it. Why, why did you not come to that conclusion yourself? Because I felt that, um, although I hadn't read Dawkins at that time, mm. I felt that that kind of reductive explanation, which obviously I knew from people like Bertrand Russell, in effect was, was saying um, science fills in part of a picture and what it fills in is all that we can know. And I began to realize that actually that was not true. Science had its limits, that actually there were insights that we could have that came from outside science. And therefore the scientific, um, if I put it like, scientific way of thinking about life was to be welcomed, but it was not the full picture. It was in effect only part of a bigger picture. And therefore I began to realize there was a need to tell the full story, to see the full picture of which science was only a part. And therefore, there are two points that really I found very, very important intellectually. One was, if science fills in one part and faith fills in another part, how do they interact? Okay? Mm. But secondly, and much more importantly, uh, the realization that science is not of ultimate significance. It tells us something that's important, but it only does it at one level. And so for me, religion is not about contradicting scientific explanation. It's saying there is more that needs to be said. There is an extra layer of interpretation mm. which science, for its own good reasons, does not want to bring into the picture. And we'll, of course, go on to talk about that when we, we, we start to talk about your most recent book, The Great Mystery. Um, I mean, sticking with the sort of the C.S. Lewis analogy as well, though, there were obviously significant people in his story. Um, the conversations he had with people like Tolkien and uh, other friends of his uh, in the Inklings and so on, um, who, you know, had a Christian faith, um, were, were quite significant, I think, in helping to shape his own walk towards Christ. Were there significant people in your journey who, who you look back and say, actually, that was a quite significant relationship when it came to me starting to, to grapple with these concepts. I think there were. And I think that I'd say there were two groups of people. One were people I talked to, mm. who in effect planted seeds and made me realize I had more thinking to do. The other is something Lewis picks up on. In Surprise by Joy, he says, look, a sound atheist has to be very careful of his reading because, <laughs> you know, you may read something and it kind of way makes you realize this isn't right. He and makes I, the I, same point in the screw tape letters, yeah, doesn't he, when he right. imagines sort of the... His uh, devilish counterpart, mm. um, uh, Screwtape, sort of, uh, well, Wormwood, um, trying to get his patient away from reading too too much into these exactly. things. Exactly. And, and there were some books I read that made me just think, oh, dear, I wonder, I wonder, but not wanting to go down mm. that road. Because I think when you're locked into a worldview, you actually don't want to read stuff that might unsettle you. Yes. But I, I read it anyway, and, and it did unsettle me, but not enough to move me from atheism to anything else. But certainly the cumulative force of that was quite significant. I think looking at my own journey of faith, I don't think someone like Lewis was even remotely involved in my conversion. I think right. I actually heard of him or, or read him right. until later. But certainly yeah. once I began to think about my faith, mm. um, I started to ask questions and my Christian friends at Oxford couldn't answer them. Mm -hmm. And I think in just utter frustration said, why don't you read C.S. Lewis? I.e., <laughs> stop bothering us. Go and read somebody else. I thought, oh, I'll do that. And, and I went and started to read C.S. Lewis. And as you can imagine, I still read C.S. Lewis yeah. because I still keep finding new mm. new ideas, stuff I've missed first time round. Had, had you come across even things like, I don't know, the Narnia stories? I'd heard of them, but I hadn't read them oh, myself. Okay. That's interesting. In fact, I've just read Narnia. I was in my early 20s, which was rather, rather a late, late start of that. <laughs> I did quite enjoy it. But, but for me, Lewis is a very good example of, of someone who um, we journey with on the road, if I can put it like that. And mm. on the road, they actually help us move on. And sometimes they stay with us all the way. And sometimes there's somebody who joined you for a little period and really helps you. And then kind of way you move on to others, but they've done something for you. You will always remember yeah. and value. What did your scientific colleagues make of this journey you were on? Um, did you 
have people who had a faith in in that sort of scientific community and or was there a significant degree of scepticism I think it's fair to say my, my school friends who remembered me as a rather aggressive atheist were <laughs> perplexed um, by what happened. Um, at Oxford, I think people really, because people didn't know me from my right. atheist phase, yeah. this wasn't really a question for them. Okay. But the, obviously at Oxford, there were a large number of scientists who were not Christians, but also a large number who were. Mm. I think that is important because, you know, one of the things you're looking for is a support group, people who in yeah. effect share some core commitments, and then you can start thinking about these and talking about these. And for that, that's very important. You know, it's mm. difficult to be a Christian on your own. You're not meant mm. to be. Mm. You're meant, in effect, to be sustained and supported by others. And I certainly found that. But there were people who, in effect, helped me significantly. For example, uh, there was Oxford's professor of theoretical chemistry who was a Methodist lay preacher and preached a sermon I heard. And actually, I still work within that framework right. he gave me mm. back in 1973. It, it mm. works, and I still use it. Yeah. So, in effect, that's a little gift of grace, if yeah. you yeah. When did the idea of possibly going forward for ordination, ministry and so on appear on the horizon? Because that, that is quite a significant departure from the life of science and research and so on. Yes, it was. I think it was very much a question of, I'm now a Christian. I've discovered a new love in life. Mm. And I feel I ought to be doing something which expresses my commitment to this. And ordination seemed to be the obvious way ahead. Mm. In other words, a life of service. Mm. And that meant I had to study theology for ordained ministry. Mm. And what happened was I began to study theology, thinking this is a step on the road to something else. Right. I found the step on the road was actually really very <laughs> interesting in itself. But I went down that road. I did yeah. get ordained. And I went into parish ministry in Nottingham, which was hugely good for me, I have mm, to say. It mm. really helped me to grow as a person and yeah. actually to make connections between my faith and life. And that right. was really, really important. Yeah, yeah. But I think the thing that really excited me was the life of the mind, that Christianity mm. you know, really has so much to say. I'm beginning to realize these things need to be said to our culture. And that really is where I began to think maybe, maybe I could say something interesting and useful yes. in the wider public sphere. Yeah. You've gone on to occupy various posts at different universities over time, uh, theological posts and positions. Uh, Currently, the um, you'll have to help me to pronounce the actual name of the chair that you currently occupy. It's the Andreas Idrius Chair of Science and Religion at Oxford. Andreas Idrius was um, the man who endowed this chair. He was, in effect, a senior official in the World Health Organization who came to the conclusion that in this complicated world, unless science and faith talk to each other, we're going to get no it's an interesting one. Now, just for those who may be unfamiliar with the way these sorts of positions work, they are often, as you say, endowed by people who want have an interest in seeing a particular point of view expressed in, in academia. Um, another one that people might be familiar is the one that Richard Dawkins until recently had held the, I think it's the Charles Simonyi um, uh, in, uh, Professor of Public Understanding of Science, something like that. Um, so now that's as far as I'm aware, been held largely by people who are atheistic in their outlook. Um, so it's almost as if there are different competing interests going on sometimes in academia, people who obviously uh, want to encourage people to engage with the relationship between science and religion and perhaps others who want to see them as being quite distinctly divided. I mean, you must find that a lot yourself. In terms well, I think that's people. right. I th- but I think the important thing is that Oxford is a place where these conversations can happen mm. and where academic integrity demands that they do take place. And that's one of the reasons why I find Oxford such an exciting place that actually, you know, I think I can hold my own. Yes. But nevertheless, these conversations are important, mm. not just because they're interesting themselves, but because people overhear them. And to mm. me, Christianity is something that can defend itself publicly. And that, that's a very important point to make, that it has intellectual resilience, which in effect is very much necessary mm. in today's culture. And we need to be able to show that. Yeah. You've obviously, in a sense, Oxford has been your home for a long time in, in one way or another. Um, just give us a sense of, of what it is about that place. And you, because I think people might be surprised that, you know, I went to Oxford and it has had at that time, and I think continues to have one of the most thriving Christian unions in the country. Um, there's always been this, this Christian strain, strong Christian strain going in terms of the academic life there. Um, why is that? And, and, and what's the kind of the magic of Oxford that 
continues to draw people there as a place to study and indeed to, to learn theology and that kind of thing. I think the magic of Oxford is that you have some wonderful teachers, mm. that you have other students who in effect get to know each other, get to respect each other, get to talk to each other. And actually it's, it's, an, it's a very much a sort of almost like a sort of um, seedbed of, mm. of reflection and thought and excitement. And I certainly find that when I, I was younger. So I guess the magic of Oxford is it's about exploring ideas in company, exploring ideas with people who, in effect, believe them, who really know what they're talking about. And you may say, well, and I thought about that, I'm going away from that. I don't want that. But on the whole, what you find is, for example, the way in which Christianity is represented at Oxford is that of an intellectually vibrant faith, mm. which is able to engage politics, morality, arts, mm. everything. Mm. And Christians who believe this needs to be done, it can be done. So in effect, there's a very vibrant Christian culture, intellectual, cultural. This is really important. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your own engagement with, with academia and theology specifically, what have been some of the key areas that you've sort of spent time? I think of you as actually very broad. You've covered all kinds of different areas of theology. I know, though, for instance, that many people see you as the go-to person on reformed theology, for instance. And of course, we're celebrating a big anniversary in the history of the reformed tradition, the 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his theses this year. Um, what, what particularly have been some of the major insights that you've been able to glean um, in your studies in that particular area? Well, I think area? the way this all happened was that I... Uh, I was a scientist who became a Christian, and I felt, look, I've got to find out some way of holding science and faith together. Mm. I know my science quite well. I had a first degree and then a doctorate in science. So I thought I really need to study theology in detail mm. to be able to master that side of the equation and then start making connections. So I began really focusing on, as you were suggesting, the, the Reformation, mm. 16th century intellectual history, then beginning to broaden out and begin to open up areas of apologetics and so on, and then finally saying, right, I'm now ready to talk about science science and mm. theology, because mm. I know enough theology. But you're right. For me, um, a very important element was um, people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, trying to understand who they were. My first book was on Martin Luther. Mm. So for me, that, that was a very important element in my intellectual journey. And in fact, I keep going back there because Luther is such an interesting figure. And as you've hinted, I'll be speaking quite a lot on Luther <laughs> to mark this uh, very significant anniversary. So yes, you know, I, I really am a theologian, but a theologian who sees dialogue with natural sciences as being critically important for both theology but also for science. Um, were those early reformers interested in the question of, of science and theology at any level? I think we often just associate them with being about, you know, doctrinal issues, you know, that obviously came to separate Protestant and Catholic traditions. But, but was there a an interest in a, a kind of dialogue going on even 500 years ago about science? Not with Luther, I think. L Luther really didn't quite have that, those intellectual contacts. Calvin mm. more so. Mm. Calvin, from his observatory in Geneva, so to speak, was able to see intellectual currents and felt that there was a need to engage these. And in fact, there are points where Calvin talks really about two areas of science, astronomy and, kind of way, the science of the human body, and feels that theology has much to contribute to those, but interestingly, that theology has something to learn from these. Because Calvin takes the view that, that God can be seen to some extent through the created order, and therefore looking at the heavens or looking at the human body actually gives depth mm. to your theological vision of God. And actually there's something in that, I think. Yeah. I mean, going a bit further on, obviously many people see the Enlightenment as a sort of a point at which um, science came into its own. And in a way, many people start to talk about there being this division between science and the church and and i don't know what you think of this but but many people think that you know there there have been various points at which the church has been anti-science you know and they might talk about the um the trial of uh, galileo and and things like that and i mean how much of this is real and how much is sort of a bit of a modern myth in terms of the 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 divide between the church and its acceptance of science i think nowadays we'd say there's an awful lot of um how shall i put it um, reconstruction of these things <laughs> going on. I mean, I mean, the science-religion thing in Galileo is one element in a much more complex picture. It's not right. about science or religion. It's much more complex than that. And certainly, um, historians of science have really made absolutely clear that there's no single thing called science, no single thing called religion. Each 
generation has its own understanding of this relationship. Mm. So very often we retroject our understanding of science and religion back on earlier generations. And it, it is much more complex than that. Mm. And certainly what you can say is that one of the things that you see, particularly in the 19th century, is scientists feeling that they need to assert their intellectual dependence of everything. Mm. Politics, mm. religion, you know, in fact, science is science. It doesn't get entangled with anything. And very often that's presented as science versus religion. It's actually not really science versus anything. Mm. It's science simply asserting its own intellectual identity and saying we want to get on with this without anybody, politicians yeah. or theologians, interfering with us. And, and many people see Darwin and his obviously seminal work with The Origin of Species as, as being central to that sort of tussle that was going on. Um, and, and again, many people paint it as, as a big battle between um, religion and science, you know, Dawkins and, and so on, and others have obviously taken up this theme. I mean, to what extent was the theory of evolution sort of a problem for the Christian church when it was first pr proposed? Well, this may surprise you listeners, but actually it wasn't that big a problem. I mean, as you can imagine, historians have really been going into this in great detail. And the evidence suggests that actually culturally, particularly in the Church of England, there was widespread feeling that something like this was probably right. And therefore, when Darwin came along, people said, aha, that's probably what it's all about, and not actually being unduly worried about it. The evidence is very much that um, those Christians who were hostile to Darwinism were basically from a sort of free church background. And, and the really important point I want to make is this. We very often, unfortunately, read Darwin through the lens of Richard Dawkins. I think we just need to read Richard, you know, Charles Darwin himself. Mm. Darwin himself is absolutely clear. He cannot see any reason why a religious person should find difficulty with his theory. Mm. And he makes it very, very clear, particularly in his letters, that he does have difficulties with Christianity at two points. Number one, it's doctrine of eternal punishment. And number two... Um, in effect, it, he thinks it doesn't have an answer to the question of suffering. And, of course, as you remember, his young daughter Annie died tragically. And, and for Darwin, that was a real problem. So yes. he felt he, he and God weren't best friends because of these things. But, his but he never evolution, called himself an atheist. No, no, no he was very clear. You know, yeah. my, my, my thoughts vary. So they fluctuate, <laughs> but I've never been an atheist. Right. So he's very, very clear. About, and he would never have seen the theory of evolution as being the cause of atheism. Right. You know, suffering for Darwin was a big mm. problem, if anything. Mm. So I think we have to be careful about this and just not retroject our views onto Darwin, which I think does Darwin a gross injustice. And yet you do have, obviously, people like Richard Dawkins saying that um, it was Darwin's theory of evolution that allowed people to become intellectually fulfilled atheists, you know. Um, there's, there's a sense in which many people would see it as part of a, a way in which science gradually chips away at the areas of that traditionally religion and Christianity have given explanations for. So if, if evolution can explain why there is a diversity of life on earth and why even we may be here, obviously you can see why some people will say, well, well, there you go, that's a great example of... Well, of course, and I can understand entirely that Dawkins would wish to choose this historical example mm. because, of course, it's his own field. But the impression he gives is that science is, in effect, irrevocably... Um, moving in an anti-God direction. And, mm. of course, uh, Dawkins is not very good, for example, at talking about the massive changes in cosmology. Because supposing mm. we had asked people of Darwin's time what they thought about the origins of the universe, well, they said, well, it's always been here. I mean, mm. that's what the science is saying. And, of course, in the 1960s, really, you have the crystallization of the evidence which points towards the Big Bang, in other words, mm. the universe came into existence mm. in, in this astonishing event that we don't really understand. And of course, suddenly the religious language of creation makes a lot of sense. Mm. You may have read that very famous lecture by Stephen Weinberg in 1967 at MIT, where he says, you know, I, you know, I much prefer steady state theory because <laughs> it's the least similar to the book of Genesis. <laughs> steady says, state theory being the idea that the universe has always, exactly. always existed yeah. at and some level. Unfortunately, steady state theory is contradicted by evidence. Yes. <laughs> says, well, you see the point, there's an anti-religious agenda yes. moving in there because of course cosmology moves us in a strongly theistic direction so it's a complicated picture it, it is and and in a sense you've been at the forefront of of the the renaissance in the sense of what's mm. sometimes called natural theology mm. the idea that we we look into nature in order to to help us understand god and to to look at whether then it might lend evidence to to for the existence of god and so on and and from what you're saying Obviously, these are very complex issues, but but you think that the the things we understand these days about the universe 
do give some clues that, that there is a God behind this. Of course they do. And I think that the key point to make here is that the, the re- remarkable developments in cosmology, in effect, show that the picture is much more complex than someone like Richard Dawkins would say. And that, that's a very important point to make. Mm. If you just tell part of the story, then in effect it, it becomes the whole story. Yes. And you need to tell the whole story and say it's not that straightforward. But look, I'm not saying that the universe proves there is a God. Mm. What I'm saying is that if you take a Christian way of looking at things and, and in effect view the universe through that lens, it comes into sharp focus. Whereas with my atheist lens as a younger person, it didn't. There were bits that were decidedly out of focus. Mm. I think one of the questions that a scientist is always going to ask is, what theory gives you the best reading of what you actually observe? In other words, what, uh, if you line up all the observations, what theory of things seems to fit those observations best? And for me, Christianity does that remarkably well. It doesn't prove it, mm. but nevertheless it says this makes a lot of sense. I, I suppose... So so much of it is subjective in terms of one person may stand and look at the cosmos and say, the majesty and awe make me feel like there is a God behind this. And another person may say, the majesty and awe of this make me feel so small and insignificant. How can I possibly think this was created with me in mind? I mean, why do you come down on the, the, the God transcendent view rather than that this can't possibly be about me? Well, I think that one thing I want to say here is that... Um, Certainly, we are overwhelmed by the immensity of the universe. But if you read Psalm 8, the psalmist is overwhelmed by the immensity of the universe. And then says, but the God who made the universe made me. And Mm. actually takes deep deep calls from that. The key point is that the universe, science, is absolutely silent on what its meaning is. It doesn't say, Mm. hey, I mean this. You and I have to figure out what it means. It's always going to be open to debate. It's not simply a closed case for atheism. It's not like that at all. Mm. In effect, it is very much what is the best way of making sense of this. And to me, the universe has a meaning, but it's not a meaning it discloses. It's a meaning we've got to find. Fascinating stuff. And we're going to be delving into that sort of area uh, in more detail in the second half of today's programme because we're going to start talking about your new book, The Great Mystery, Science God and the Human Quest for Meaning, uh, published by Hodder and uh, my guest today on the profile, Alistair McGrath. Uh, Really enjoying this conversation today. I'm Justin Briley, your host for today's edition of the programme. And don't forget, you can find more interesting conversations with people from all walks of faith and life at the website of the programme, premierchristianradio.com slash the profile as well as in premier christianity magazine ask for a free sample copy at premierchristianity.com slash free sample and i'll be back with more from alistair in a moment's time the profile you're listening to premier christian radio Welcome back to the second half of today's profile. I'm Justin Briley, Senior Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And the programme is brought to you in association with that monthly title. You can check it out for yourself at the website, premierchristianity.com. Add slash free sample to get a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine. And we often feature people uh, like the guest who's joining me on the programme today, Alistair McGrath. He's a theologian, priest and former scientist. And in the first half of the programme, we heard the story of his own conversion, how it mirrors in some ways the story of C.S. Lewis, one of Alistair's theological heroes, I think it's fair to say. And also, of course, some of the interesting debates he's been involved in, in terms of science, faith and religion. And uh, that's very much, again, the theme behind his latest book, The Great Mystery, Science, God and the Human Quest for Meaning. Um, It's uh, been recommended by people like Rowan Williams, um, another splendid contribution from Alistair McGrath to the intellectual and imaginative treasury of belief. In fact, that was actually praised for the previous book, Inventing the Universe. And um, I've sat down to talk with you about that as well, Alistair. Do you want to explain what that book was about, Inventing the Universe, came out a year or two ago now, and and how this book is is complementary to it? Well, Inventing the Universe was really saying, look... um, Science is very, very good in its own area. 
and that it gives us part of a bigger picture. And so in many ways, Inventing the Universe was saying, let's see how science and faith, in effect, can be brought together to give us an enriched vision of reality. And it's about trying to map out the ways in which we can see science and faith as filling in this bigger picture, but each of them does in a distinct way. And above all, it's saying there are limits to what science can tell us. We need to respect that. And therefore, someone who says science gives us all the answers is really saying science gives us only some answers and refuses to allow that anybody else has anything to say. I mean, people often talk about the idea that science answers how questions, the sort of physical questions, and that religion um, and philosophy are perhaps more suited to the so-called why questions. Now, I have heard people like Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss and others say, well, the why questions are simply stupid questions because um, ultimately the only questions we're really interested in are the how questions. What's, what's your response to people who take that kind of view on, on those sorts of questions? Well, I would say that one of the most secure findings of empirical psychology is that human beings think that the why questions are really massively important. And therefore, if Dawkins or Christ don't want to engage with these questions, they're simply showing that their views are existentially inadequate. In other words, they cannot engage the questions that really matter to people. And it seems to me that that is a real misreading of what science is all about. It is an unnecessary, arbitrary truncation of what science is able to tell us and what there is to discover. But you've got people, again, uh, sorry to keep banging on about him, but but Dawkins, who famously wrote, you know, the universe that we observe has all the properties we'd, we would expect if there is at bottom uh, no purpose, no design, no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Um, you know, and he says, the universe doesn't owe you a purpose, Alistair, so stop trying to impose one, you know, that, that clearly isn't there. Um, I mean, how do you respond to that? His view is obviously, ultimately, we, we, we just are, um, you know, sad to say, it's just a physical universe and, and that's all there is. And we've just got to get along as best we can. We can't invent meaning out of that. And that's what I thought when I was an atheist as a teenager. And gradually I began to realize that, in effect, what I was doing was very dogmatically saying, what you see is what you get. There cannot be anything more. But what if there is something waiting for us to be discovered? Not something we've invented, Mm. but something we discover or discern. And in many ways, the quarrel between Dawkins and me is not whether science is good or anything like that. It's whether we stop where science stops Mm. or whether there is something beyond the realm of science that science is not able to answer certain questions and they are really important questions. Therefore, either we say there are no answers that can be given to these questions or we say, well, actually, we say goodbye to science here because we need answers to these questions and have to move beyond science. It's a really important discussion as to whether, in effect, reality is defined by what science can discover or whether, in effect, there is something that science is not really able to articulate, which is important to the way in which we live. You've had a few conversations over the years with Richard Dawkins. I mean, what, what's been your impression of those? Um, is, is he open to having these sorts of conversations about meaning and purpose? Or, or, or do you find that his mind is kind of closed and he, he just doesn't think that that's a valid sort of approach to, to life? Well, I, I think it would be very rude of me to say that Richard Dawkins has a closed mind, so I won't say that. What I will say is that quote you gave us from River Out of Eden about mm. the universe being precisely what we expect, and there's no purpose, no meaning, no mm. nothing, does seem to be characteristic of him throughout his career. Um, I think that, in effect, uh, I would very much hope that Dawkins as a scientist would keep open the possibility that this is simply one way of reading the universe, which he regards as self-evidently correct. But if you look at the structure of that sentence very carefully, it's about consistency, not proof. What he's saying is, my atheism gives me a way of looking at the universe which I feel to be consistent. Mm. A Christian would say exactly the same thing. The universe does not say, I vote with Dawkins. It's a very important <laughs> point. The universe is silent. Right. We have to figure out what it's all about. Or else somebody tells us what it's all about. <laughs> I mean, your book, The Great Mystery, is very much what it's all about. It's asking the question that's been asked you know, since time immemorial, what is the meaning of life? Now, um, some people say 42, don't they, in the grand tradition of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. But on a more serious level, um, what are some of the various answers to that question that you start to unpack in the book? Because you, you look at a number of different people and what they've mentioned and said about 
the quest for, for meaning in human life. Well, I do, and I try to map out some possibilities just to give the reader a sense of the kind of questions people are mm. asking and the answers are given. And of course, Richard Dawkins is one of them. Yes. But that there are many others. And one of the points I'm trying to make is there's no self-evidently right answer. It's not as if Christians are saying something which is so obviously wrong that we just mm. have to go home and forget about it. It is that we don't know. We can't prove. Mm. We have to believe that there's a certain answer. And Dawkins believes that his answer is that there is no meaning at all. I mean, that, that is his view, and he's entitled to it, mm. but it is a belief, not a fact. And so one of the points I emphasize throughout this book, that when it comes to meaning, we're all in the same boat. We have to have faith that meaning is about this, whatever it is we say. And that seems to me to be something that really needs to be said, because very mm. often the debate moves as if it is self-evident what meaning is. It's not. And that's why I think we need to reopen this question and reconsider some possibilities that our culture seems to have bypassed, not because they're wrong, mm. but simply because it doesn't like them. Right. What are some of those options, then, that you start to explore in the book? Because, as I say, the Dawkins answer is, well, there is no such thing as ultimate meaning. Um, others may say it's something we, we sort of invent within ourselves, that we can have subjective meaning. Um, and obviously others in your tradition, Alistair, would say there is an ultimate meaning. There's a sort of something beyond that. Um, how do we sort between those and what, what might give us evidence for one over the other? One of the things I do in this book is, is, is look at the philosopher Susan Wolfe, mm. who is a very able American philosopher. But she says, look, philosophers have given up on this question of meaning, in effect, because they, they can't really answer this question. And it seems terribly naive. And in many ways, what philosophers have concentrated on is what people find meaningful, rather than the bigger question, what is the meaning of life? Now, mm. I find that rather sad, because what I think brought philosophy into being in the first place was you know, what is life all yeah. about? How do we lead the good mm. life? So it really is important. But Wolf, I think, makes a very good point. She says that there are two ways you can think about meaning, objective and subjective. Objective, there's something deep within the universe itself which we need to accept and acknowledge, and that gives a sense of meaning. That's the idea that we discover something out exactly. there. Yes. And then subjective, I personally decide that meaning is about this, mm. my decision, and I pursue that, and that is meaningful for me. And, and she's quite right about that. We can do these. But actually, if you're a Christian, these two things do coincide. In other words, that there's this objective sense that meaning is grounded in God and that subjectively we're able to express this in the way in which mm. we live and think and hope. So I try to make the point that actually, although there's multiple issues about how we think about meaning, actually, in the end, it's about here is what I think is really there and here is how it works out in my life. I mean, I... I've seen a video doing the rounds, and it's one of a number voiced by the TV personality Stephen Fry for the British Humanist Association. And one of them is about meaning and saying, where do we get meaning from? And saying, you know, people, you know, religious people say they get it from holy books and God and prayer and so on. How can someone without any religious beliefs have meaning? And he goes on to say, well, we can have meaning from all kinds of things we do. Our hobbies, our interests, our family, cooking, politics, uh, all of these are the things that we ascribe meaning to in our lives. And so in a sense, he and I suppose advocates of that position from the British Humanist Association say that the only meaning we can have is that, is that meaning with a small m, that, that personal meaning, but that ultimately that's fine. You know, that's that's what we have and that's what we live with and, and you know we're quite happy with that why I mean do you have a problem with people who who go with the, the meaning with a small m position no, I, I, for me um, humanism or more accurately secular humanism because this is a very <laughs> narrow form of humanism is saying within our worldview this is what all that meaning can be I agree with them mm. I just say <laughs> there's a lot more to it than that right and in effect a deeper vision of reality gives you something else and if Stephen Fry is happy with his hobbies great I'm very happy mm -hmm. for him but what I'm saying is that 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 he does not speak with authority he has mm. no right to say that is all there is he's mm. saying I and my friends think this. Good. I'm delighted. What, what makes you think that there is more than that, though? Obviously, as far as Stephen Fry is concerned, that's all he can see, that, that he doesn't particularly find any need to recognize any deeper level of meaning in life or the universe. What, what makes you convinced there is actually a Well, let me give level? you two answers to that question, because I think it's a very good one. One is, if there is a God, and if that mm. God is, as Christians say God is, that changes everything. Mm. Because, in effect, Christians think of God as the ground of meaning and hope. Mm. And if God is like that, that's just a game changer. Right. Now, obviously, Stephen Fry doesn't believe in that kind of God. So, in effect, he, he can't have access to that. Right. What I'm saying is, if this is right, it mm. changes 
everything. Yeah. But the other thing is this. In this book, one of the things I'm looking at is why it is that human beings think meaning is so important. Mm. And it is not, you know, I enjoy my hobbies. Right. It is. There are certain things that are good, certain things that are meaningful, certain yeah. things that are right. And this gives direction and purpose to our lives. And you're and talking about objectively these they're things. They're talking about things that are there, that yeah. in effect this is all about living life properly and meaningfully as human yeah. beings. In other words, stop simply functioning and living. And mm. It's a very, very big issue indeed. Yeah. And it's a, about a broader, deeper vision of life. And what Christianity does is it gives you this big picture. It says, look, you know, there is this bigger way of reality. You fit into this picture. You matter. There's something you're meant to be doing. And sure, I mean, I've got a hobby or two, you know, and, and I enjoy doing those. But there is something much bigger which is going on as well. Again, I'll, I'll continue to play devil's advocate here. But, but I can imagine the response being, L- lovely for you, Alistair, but actually all you're experiencing is a sort of an illusion brought on by your biological and evolutionary history, which sort of means that we have to think that way. We have to give great, you know, purposes and causes for things because that's always helped us in the past, you know, to escape predators. You know, if we imagine that there was the rustling in the bushes was a tiger. And we've just sort of projected that into the the whole universe and that, that there's some bigger cause and agency going on. But in the end, this all boils down to just getting through life and and um, we've discovered that through science. So get on board and realise that, that all this big talk about meaning and God is simply our way of surviving in, in a, an ultimately godless world. Uh, and that's a wonderfully superficial reading of, <laughs> of science and philosophy. Let me give an equally superficial response. That is simply the, the, the response of somebody who does not want religion to be right and okay. therefore is producing post hoc rationalizations of this. Rather like um, Thomas Nagel in, in one of his books. Um, in fact, says, look, I don't want there to be a God. I don't like this idea mm. at all, and therefore develops these intellectual arguments to show that his personal judgments are right. I think we have to realize that actually one of the securest findings of modern psychology is that actually very often there are emotional grounds for our rational judgments. In other mm. words, there's something deep down emotionally that very often drives our rational judgments. What I want to know is What's the aversion? What is the driving factor here? It's not rational. There's something deeper going on. Mm. We need to find out about that. And do you think the fact that there is, in a sense, this universal um, longing for the transcendent, which we find in all cultures, places, and religions, in a sense, is at some level evidence that that we were made for another world, as Lewis puts it? Well, I think that I was saying earlier that one of the things you try and do is say, here is a theory. How well does this theory map onto what we observe? Mm. One of the key observations about human existence is that we quest for meaning. And that is very, very important. So you need to have a theory which takes account of it. And maybe your theory says, well, maybe we do, but frankly, we're deluded. Mm. But there might be another approach which says, actually, these deep instincts are really pointing towards certain things we ought to be doing and pursuing. The Christian understanding of humanity as bearing God's image, in effect, is saying we have a homing instinct for God. And that expresses itself in many ways. One of them is this quest for the transcendent, this quest for meaning. In effect, this realization that in ourselves and of ourselves, we are a closed system which does not find meaning unless there is something outside us that is able to give us that meaning, with a capital M. Yes, Um, I mean, if someone was to ask you, Alistair, and you could give a long or a short answer, what is the meaning of life? What would you say to them? Well, uh, the the long answer would be the word meaning basically needs to be broken down Mm. into things like identity, purpose, what is good, do I matter, Mm. and agency, can I make a difference? But the short answer would be that... um, For me, meaning is about realizing that I matter to a loving and living God who journeys with me as I travel through life's uncertainties, even in the valley of the shadow of death. And and that, I think, brings us nicely to the point that many people kind of... (laughs) Meaning becomes its most poignant when we are confronted with death and with suffering and disaster. Just recently in London, we've had a tragic fire of a set of tower blocks which um many people will be asking why that why question will be coming back but in the form of why if there is a god would he allow something like that to happen very understandable question i mean 
the fact that we do encounter such terrible suffering in our world, as well as the, the awe and wonder that creation and nature inspires in us, does leave us wondering about meaning again, but from that perspective and, and, and why such things exist if, if there is an ultimate loving God out there. A huge thing to open up, but what would you say to, to someone who's asking that kind of a question about meaning? Well, I think there are three things I'd want to say. One of them is that um, we look at things like this recent tar block fire in mm. London and we, we say that's awful. And certainly that might make us raise questions about God. If you're an atheist, there is no God to blame for this. And actually that fire may well turn out to be the result of human failure in yeah. many ways. Yeah. And we have to realize that that is saying to us, we got things wrong here. Mm. We need to do something about that. Mm. But I think there are two more profound things to say. One of them is this. There's this deep instinct within human nature which says this is not the way things are meant to be. We shouldn't be suffering. Mm. We shouldn't be going through pain. There are certain things that are wrong. Yes. And actually, that's the key thing. It's, it, it's that suffering, it's not so much it's irrational. It's that it, it, it is offensive. It's wrong. Yes. It shouldn't be there. Mm. What I want to know is where that feeling comes from. Yeah. That's a deep question. And Augustine of Hippo gives us the answer. He says, look, it's because his framework, memories of Eden, hopes of the new Jerusalem, it wasn't like that. It won't be like that. Mm. We have this big vision which makes us look at this and say, this is not the way it is. And therefore, it motivates us to saying, what can we do to try and do something about right now? Mm. Which is why so many Christians feel they need to work for the health service or in social care precisely to try and do something about this is to bring it into line with what we know it should be. But here's the third point, and it's even more important. Mm. You think about the cross, you know, Christ dying on the cross, which is central to Christianity. That is about the meaningful inhabitation of meaninglessness. In other words, it's about looking at an event which seems absolutely full of hopelessness, helplessness, and total meaninglessness. Yeah. And yet through that, God does something. That's the kind of vision of the world we have, a messy, suffering world. But we know God is there somehow. And that's very, very important to hold on to. I, I often think of it in terms of um, certainly these events are a great mystery when mm -hmm. it comes to Christian faith. But on an an atheistic worldview, at some level, they are meaningless. They, it just is the way it is. There is no rhyme or reason. And even though we, we may consider these things a great mystery in, in Christian faith, we have the hope that there will one day be some sort of an answer, some kind of a, a way in which God does, as it says, wipe away every tear, uh, a day of, of justice and reconciliation and, and redemption. I mean, the average atheist may say, that's lovely, but it is pie in the sky. You just have to deal with the fact that bad stuff happens we live in a, a world of mechanical cause and effect and and that's it but but you're not prepared to to see things as reductively as that we do live in the world of cause and effect but it, it, it there's more to it than that that's that's mm. the key point and they have to say what you see is what you get that's it in this book um uh, the great mystery one of the images i develop is the road and the balcony. And I want to just explain this because mm. it actually is quite helpful yeah. in relation to this point we're talking about. The road is where we are walking along. The balcony is a place of privilege which you look down on the road and you can see where it's going. You can actually see the way it is. To be able to make any judgments about what meaning is or anything like that, you need to be on the balcony. But as human beings, we're all on the road. You know, we are trying to figure out mm. the meaning of life from within life. It's not as if atheists some privileged position which lets them say, hey, we see the way it really is. Though actually have to say a lot of them do say that. Mm. But the reality is we are all on the road trying to make sense of a messy, complex reality. And Christians are saying that, in effect, we have found something which actually lets us see things in a different way, if you like, uh, an anticipation of the mm. view from the balcony, even while we're on the road, which means we journey in hope, which yes. is a really important difference to make. Yes. And, and in that sense, I suppose, what's, if science tells us anything, it, it should give us a little bit of humility about the, the very restricted nature of our mind. I mean, you know, our entire perception of reality is somehow located in, you know, a few pounds of grey matter in our skull. Um, Yet we often, you know, to hear some voices think you'd think that we've managed to figure out everything there is to know about life, the universe and everything from that. And I suppose we've got to remember how incredibly limited we are, even even as we have made incredible discoveries, which 
to some extent you might even say is miraculous in the context of of what we've managed mm. to do you know with with the, the these brains but but nonetheless it's very difficult to say that we we know it all we point. don't know it all and more than that we when we uh, one thing I, I love doing is reading old science textbooks from 1910s and, and you read them <laughs> this is the way things are folks and you say it's not that's what they thought back in 1910 yeah and now i say well look we're now being told this is the way it is folks but a future historian is going to look back and say, that's what they thought in 20, whatever it was. Yeah. You know, and, and we now know better. I mean, science is provisional. That's the key point. It's on a journey. It has not reached destination. We've talked about changing views of cosmology. You know, a century ago, hey, the universe has always been here. Now it came into existence. We just don't know And, these and it's getting weirder all the time. All in the, the time. In the sense of, you know, quantum physics that's and everything. Right. Just, I mean, the yeah. idea, you know, a quantum event at this side, the universe affects one the other side. I mean... To, to a hard-nosed rationalist, that's irrational. Yes. But actually, we have to realize reality is much more complicated than that. And the point I want to make simply is I wish scientists would be more humble and say, look, um, this is a bit of a mystery. We've got a bit of a handle on it, and hopefully it's getting better all the time. But actually, the more we understand, paradoxically, the less we understand. For every question we answer, six new ones are opened up. Coming back to where we began and your story of your own conversion... Having come from that scientific background, what, what was it that enabled you to, as it were, take the, the faith step? And I guess what is all often something that is both the head and the heart, where you were able to trust in Jesus Christ and, and sort of came to ultimately see him as, in some way, the answer to all of these huge questions that we've been talking about today. Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, if I can put it like this, um, I had a rather intellectual conversion. And, and the, you know, you might think this is all about simply God as an explanatory um, principle. Me- yes, and that, that, that was yeah. there, but yeah. there was something else. I'm going to try and explain it to you okay. because it answers that specific question yeah. you've asked. Yeah. Here was my thought as I was an atheist. Supposing there is a God. God's kind of way up there. Mm. I'm down here in history and time and space, and God isn't there. How on earth, if there is a God, can that God be of any relevance to me living in time and space? And then I discovered this idea of the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. That is to say, God enters into human history. The Word became flesh. That's a very important biblical verse for me, John 1, uh, 14. Uh, And that means that God enters into time and space. And that is a game changer. You can see immediately why it is. First of all, it's saying, saying something very significant about Christ, but it's also saying something extremely important about God. If the incarnation is right, then my problem disappears. And my problem simply was, God is there, I am here. He doesn't know anything about what it's like to be here, and he's not meaningful to me. So that way of thinking actually really led me to focus on Christ as one who was God incarnate, who in effect thus brought salvation, revelation. You can see all the ways in which line of thought going. But above all, it is a token, a guarantee, a reassurance that that God knows what I'm going through. And so when I pray to God, when I go through times of suffering and so on, I don't just say to God, you know, you don't know what this is like, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Because in effect, he's been here and and that changes everything. Thank you for talking to me about the game-changing nature of God, science, the universe and everything else. Um, Alistair, it's been a privilege to to spend an hour or so in your company. Uh, If you want to find out more about the book, uh, do go and check it out online. Uh, The Great Mystery, Science, God and the Human Quest for Meaning, available at good bookstores and, of course, via Amazon and all the other usual ways. Uh, I do encourage you to get hold of it and, of course, its predecessor, Inventing the Universe. But for the moment, Alistair, thank you for joining me today on The Profile. Justin, it's my pleasure. If you want to listen back to today's programme, you can go online and do that. PremierChristianRadio.com slash The Profile. We're also available on iTunes as a podcast as well as via other podcasting software. Uh, do go and check out all the other programmes that are available. Thanks for being with me on today's programme. Look forward to you joining us again at the same time next week. Coming up next, Dave Rose with Premier Playback. <laughs>